0: Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with David R. Fulmer about business immigration and human capital. David Fulmer, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast.
1: Thank you, John. I'm really happy
0: to be here today. Yeah, it is a pleasure to be with you. I'm super excited to have a nice conversation today. We're going to be focusing on immigration law, particularly business immigration and the impact that we see that having on Corporations and really the world of work and human capital, uh, what this really means, you know, currently as well as moving into the future, and what organizational leaders need to be paying attention to. As we get started, I wanted to share David's bio with everybody. David R. Fulmer is a partner in the Los Angeles office of WR Immigration, one of the largest immigration law firms in the United States. He has worked in the field of immigration law for 25 years and is the past chair of the immigration section and chair of the LA County Bar. In 2021, he was recognized as Best Lawyers Immigration Lawyer of the Year in Los Angeles. As a business immigration attorney, he assists organizations of all sizes in establishing and maintaining programs for hiring non-U.S. talent on work visas and assisting employers with their immigration compliance obligations. That's wonderful, and this is an increasingly complex uh, area of the law, and and something that organizations have to be grappling with, both in terms of trying to get great talent, but also dealing with the legal compliance components of all of this. So it's going to be fascinating to explore this with you and get all of your insights. I appreciate you spending time uh, with me and my listeners today. Before we jump on into the conversation, anything else you would like listeners to know by way of your background or personal context? Um, no, I think you, you did a great job of covering it. Thank you. Okay, well, let's dive right on in then. and Maybe you can start by just laying out the general landscape for immigration uh, law currently as we as it pertains to Uh, labor and organizations, you know, desires to employ good talent from anywhere around the world.
1: Definitely, definitely. You know, immigration law is a pretty broad topic and it it often gets political. Uh, There are different kind of areas of immigration law. Um, There is, um, you know, family based immigration, which a lot most people know about, you know, if you marry a U.S. citizen or if you have a close relative who's um, a U.S. citizen, you can help them immigrate. Um, there is also humanitarian based immigration, you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, with people from Afghanistan coming to the US as refugees. And then we have, um, well, there's investment based immigration, which is kind of a hybrid between uh, employment based and some an individual process. This is where uh, foreign investors um, can invest money in the United States, set up companies, employ people and either get visas or immigrate based on that. And then you have the big thing that I deal with, which is employment-based immigration. This is where uh, companies can obtain work visas and permanent residency for foreign workers that companies uh, need to employ for their businesses. The the largest and the the most commonly used visa in this process is called the H-1B visa. I think most people know about it. Um, Tens of thousands of of people um, come to the United States every year on H-1B visas, they can be renewed. And um, then if an employer needs to keep some, someone long-term, they can petition um, the Department of Labor and U.S. Immigration um, to keep them uh, long-term. So that's that's the field that I deal with most of the time.
0: Yeah, thank you for laying that out. That's super helpful just for context. Uh, and so, and you're based in California. California has all of its own extra layer of... of uh, labor law and compliance issues and, and those sorts of things. So we don't necessarily need to get into all the nitty gritty of all the differences in California specifically. Uh, many listeners are, you know, from across the country, really even across the globe. But as we zoom out a little bit and we just think about labor related immigration, uh, more broadly, and we think about it, you know, across the U S but even globally, uh, what are some of the types of things that we need to be thinking about in terms of, uh, both the compliance issue, certainly, but also in ter- just in terms of uh, an organization's ability to attract and retain top talent uh, in, in a day and age where we where don't feel as geographically bound as perhaps we did before. Yeah, um,
1: that's a very good question, John. You know, when the pandemic started, I kind of wondered if if my industry, if my profession was was going to eventually go away because people don't need to be in a specific place. Now we're almost two years into it, and I can tell you um, it has not slowed down. Um, people are able, especially in the technology field, yes, they're able to work um, on global remote teams, but um, there is going to be a need for people to be as close together as possible. And you know, definitely in, in, in the same country, in many cases, um, I've seen situations where uh, companies tried to hire someone, say in India, and have them work a US schedule. And that only works for so long. Um, The person um, usually can't keep up with having to work all night and then there's the need to be together. So yes, I don't think um, immigration law is going away because we have have Zoom. Um, What I'm seeing is that in the United States and worldwide, there is an explosion um, in in business and innovation um, along the lines of technology. Um, You know, here in California, Silicon Valley um, is a huge hub for innovation, and there's there's, there's so much startup activity there. Um, Here in Los Angeles, we have a lot of startup activity. Um, Throughout the United States, um, you know, us in Texas, um, there in Utah, um, in in Florida, there's um, a tech hub. We have so many companies innovating, um, creating startups, venture capital is very active, and unfortunately, in the United States our um, our um, university students are not studying and, and graduating with degrees in technology at the same pace as innovation is happening and as startups are happening and as company companies are needing um, um, these individuals so uh, we have a demand that exceeds the supply what we normally do we import and that's really what um, you know business immigration is all about bringing in um, top-notch talent in the United States to fill these um, positions.
0: Yeah, and and that gap has existed for a while now. It's only become more and more acute over time. Uh, you know, you talk about any STEM field and there's already been a labor shortage and gap there from what we have in the US and, versus what the the labor uh, demand is. But, but even beyond STEM, I mean, when, when we just think about uh, the general... Uh, the nature of the labor market, oh, yeah. even, pre, even pre-Great Resignation. I mean, right now, everyone's struggling to get uh, jobs filled in all sorts of categories, STEM or not. Like, it's just hard to get good people. Um, but even pre-Great um, Resignation, it was still a challenge um, because you have baby boomers retiring in droves, and just all these different factors—the rise of the gig economy and, and uh, younger people not wanting to work in traditional corporate jobs—and so for all these reasons, we, you know, we, we've increasingly needed to be able to tap into talent uh, internationally. And it, like you said, in in some cases, it works really well; they can work remotely, they can be you know anywhere in the world. In other cases, we want them here with us. Uh, and then we, we have to deal with the, the legal immigration issues.
1: That's true. And, you know, sometimes at that higher end, you know, the executive or the computer professional, they can't work overseas for a period of time, but there are some positions and, you know, on at the entry level or in areas like hospitality, manufacturing, there's, you know, they cannot um, work remotely. They have to be here in person. And there's a huge shortage on that end too. I think we've all walked into restaurants and, and seeing that, um, you know, sorry, you know, we're closed because we don't have any staff, or you're going to have to wait a long time. We're all waiting for our orders from Amazon because there's no truck drivers to deliver, and there's shipping problems. So yeah, there is a um, shortage in the United States and elsewhere of people who are willing and able to really get their hands dirty, roll up their sleeves, and work.
0: Yeah, and it, and it isn't just a U.S. problem. Like this is a right. this certainly it's it's very um, relevant to the labor market here in the US. But this is a global issue uh, and the, the lack of, of uh, tech talent, STEM talent in particular, or you know other fields like healthcare also a huge, huge ongoing issue. So if I'm a firm and I want to you know, hire top talent from somewhere else in the world, what are some of the things I need to be thinking about uh, in terms of just the legal complexities of, of making that kind of a hire and then dealing with all the compliance based issues.
1: You bet. Uh, so, you know, some companies, when they look into it a little bit, they realize they have to file some kind of application with the, the federal government. And it has to do with immigration. They say, no, we don't want to touch that. It's too complex. It's controversial. Uh, we, we, we don't want to even go there. And I think companies first need to realize that it's, it's not impossible. It's not that difficult. Sure, there's a cost but it is something that's very doable and it's done by um, most of the largest companies um, in the country. Most of the time they will need some assistance if the company's never done it before, it's very unlikely that they would have the internal expertise to be able to do it on their own. And then they need to start, You know, once they've opened their eyes and kind of agreed that they're going to do this, open their eyes to those resumes that are coming in who were not in the US, or maybe opening their eyes to the um, application from the foreign student who is in the United States and who is graduating with with either a one year open work permit or sometimes a one year extendable work permit that will allow them to work for three years without any sponsorship. Open their eyes to those possibilities and then they're going to see those applicants because if um, if they're posting technology jobs, they're getting those applicants from the foreign students or from the people who are overseas.
0: In the world of higher education, I'm a professor. I also do, you know, consulting and things like this podcast on the side. But in the world of higher ed, it's also super common uh, to hire international um, scholars uh, and professors to come and work at uh, at universities. And I've I've seen at my own university a real hesitancy um, to to really go through that process to hire uh, foreign professors. Uh, now we have plenty of foreign professors, right? Um, so, so it does happen, but but there's definitely you know a hesitancy there, and you know a, a concern. I think you know many many organizations are this way, and in higher ed we tend to be kind of slow moving, conservative, perhaps risk averse, um, and so you know there's a concern about the legal components, and you know just a desire to not have to deal with those sorts of things if at all possible. Um, What would you say, you know, to to leaders, administrators uh, in a higher ed space versus, say, in a tech company uh, who may be wrestling with, you know, whether or not they want to try to go down this path?
1: Well, I would say that the uh, immigration law is really structured to give preference to higher education. Just as an example, um, you know, when a company would like to hire an individual individuals on an H-1B, and if, if the person has never had an H-1B, the company has to go through a lottery process uh, because there is a higher demand for H-1Bs than Congress has, has allowed. However, if a university would like to hire a professor or another staff member on an H-1B, there's no lottery. Um, with, uh, in, in the private sector, there's a specific timeline. In fact, it's coming up. Private companies need to start now so they can put their lottery applications in for the end of March so that they can get the workers started in October. So it's it's a long ramp up time. Universities don't have to worry about that. There's no annual cycle. There's no lottery. And they also have preference when it comes to obtaining permanent residency for foreign workers. A company has to advertise a job and show that there are no qualified, no minimally qualified U.S. workers in order to obtain permanent residency. Um, A university simply has to show that they did a competitive recruitment and that the person they hired was the most qualified. Well, that's the standard that universities use when they organize a search committee to find someone anyway. So universities definitely, there is some red tape, there is some compliance, but it's much easier for universities than it is for the private sector. Uh, I would, I mean, I love working with universities. I represent some universities and um, many of the challenges that we see in the private sector are not there um, in higher education. So I would encourage universities to open their eyes. You know, our US students deserve the very best education that we can provide them. And So if there's this amazing professor in Italy who can teach about art history and if they're the, the most qualified person, why not bring them on? Let our students benefit from that talent or whatever the field might be. So um, I highly encourage um, looking at work visas and immigration for um, in the higher ed space.
0: I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, Bluer Than Indigo Leadership, The Journey of Becoming a Truly Remarkable Leader. and produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations yeah yeah I love it um, and I and I think you know it's interesting just zooming out from ing- immigration law uh, for a second and just thinking about labor and employment law you know being uh, both uh, labor and employment um, related consultant and, and, and I'm a professor in the space as well, you know, and then I see, you know, administratively, I see, you know, the office of legal counsel and legal affairs for the university or the, the, the internal HR department and some of the, the policies or, or interpretations, you know, that they, they have and that, that influence what they end up doing. I can, I can see that. And perhaps from a different perspective than the average faculty member Mm -hmm. (laughs) at the university. And I, and I have to admit, like most of the time I scratch my head and I'm like, huh, that's, that's a really overly conservative kind of an approach, (laughs) you know, that they, they, they they don't need to be so boxed in that, you know, they seem to feel like they have to be. Um, But, you know, that's not my, I, sometimes I, I speak up and I'll, I'll, I'll push back and challenge, but it's not exactly my place or my role at the university. So, But,
1: you know, generally speaking, when you get a lawyer involved, a lawyer is, their job is to avoid risk. So often they'll take the most conservative position um, and that's their job. They'll look at the risks and the liabilities and they'll say, you know, I don't recommend it because of X, Y, Z. And then you have... Um, You know, in a company, it's the business unit in a university, perhaps it's the, you know, the academic side who needs the talent and they push back. And then often there's a negotiation and a meeting in the middle. And as an immigration attorney, sometimes I'm kind of in the middle there helping them negotiate and work out something that works both from um, an operational perspective and from a compliance and risk management perspective.
0: Yeah, yeah, super interesting. So, and you've already referred to this a little bit. Um, but maybe we could talk a little bit more specifically about how the pandemic has really impacted uh, immigration law, I suppose, generally, but, but immigration law specifically related to labor immigration mm-hmm. uh, and, and the human capital needs of organizations. Yeah, you bet. In December of um,
1: 2019, um, no, we're talking about... Um, See, when, the, when the pandemic really um, got going, I guess it was March of 2020, December 2019, we started hearing about the coronavirus COVID-19 in China. And that's when President Trump did something which was at the time was kind of controversial. He said, well, Chinese people cannot come into the United States. And there was a big uproar about that. And then as this coronavirus started circling the world, went to Europe and the UK and really got bad in places like Brazil, India, um, The U.S. locked down those countries. They put a travel ban on, in the end, 33 countries. Um, And what that meant was that unless people fit into a narrow exception, they could not come to the United States, uh, even if they had a a visa. Now, of course, there was an exception. U.S. citizens and people with green cards could still come back home, but foreign people could not come come into the United States. And um, so what we had is a lot of foreign workers here in the United States, you know, and they couldn't go home for a long time. So we had these workers who were really worried, for example, when the pandemic's really raging in India and had these guys on H1Bs who wanted to go home and help take care of their parents and they couldn't because if they left, they would not be able to come back. That, that's one thing. Another thing that happened was, you know, companies had made offers to people overseas that had got tentative approvals, but they could not bring those people to the United States. And so for a period of time, and this ended in, in this past November, there was, um, things were on hold. If, if someone was in the United States, they had to stay in. And if somebody was outside of the United States, it was very hard to get them, um, get them into the United States. What we had to do then was look at the exceptions that were available. And um, the law said that if, um, if there is a compelling national interest that you could demonstrate to the U.S. consulate, then the person could come into the United States in in spite of the ban. And so we were spending a lot of time working on these national interest exceptions. Um, Those bans were lifted on November 6th. There was a, a short ban put on South Africa and six other African countries because of the Omicron variant. Those are gone now. And so things are normalizing a lot. But what we're seeing now is that throughout the world, most of the US consulates have a really long backlog, a really long wait to get an appointment because things were locked down previously. So maybe that's more than you wanted to hear, but those are some of the dynamics.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, that uh, obviously that everything you just described has, has had a huge impact on individuals and families. It's also had a big impact on organizations trying to wrestle with their human capital needs and, and, you know the the availability of that talent, even people they've already made offers to, or people who are already employed, but for whatever reason, like you said, they found themselves sort of stuck, uh, one way or another. Um, and now, you know, there's been multiple variants. Now we're in the middle of the widespread Omicron variant. Uh, you know, here in Utah, for example, uh, yesterday we we set the record by the number of positive cases, wait, uh, it was something like 7,000, uh, the previous record back in like December, uh, of, of 2020, which was the, the previous spike was like 4,500. So which is this huge leap and, and it's, right. it's spreading like wildfire. And so, you know, thankfully it's, it's, uh, uh it seems to not have as much of a strong health impact on people. So people who are catching it, aren't getting as sick, aren't getting hospitalized as much. So that's a good thing, but it seems to be much more transmissible. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see how things play out. We're, we're close to two years into this thing and we're still talking about it. We're still dealing with it. Um, and, and who knows? So all of everything you've been describing, you know, we, we, on the one hand, we would say, okay, pandemic related immigration law and, and, uh, labor law, uh, something that, is going to fade away and, and we're gonna be able to get past it. Uh, but I'm not so sure, Like we're still kind of in the middle of it. Um, so what, right. would you say, what would you say to organizations that are still wrestling with the uncertainty around the pandemic and trying to figure out who to make offers to and how to deal with their human capital needs?
1: Well, I'll tell you, You know, again, we're almost two years into this. When this thing started, I had um, corporate clients that I work with who kind of fit into different categories. Some decided, you know, we're in this pandemic, we're just going to wait until it's done before we we do anything, before we make any more offers to foreign nationals, before we do any more visas, we're just going to kind of freeze our program. Others said, well, this thing will end, and if we, uh, David, what steps can we take now so that we'd be better situated to fill our talent needs as soon as these bans are lifted? And so the companies that took the second position and decided to move ahead, um, well, they got their people a long time ago. Sure, it took longer than it would have taken if there were no pandemic, but they, um, they were able to move ahead and work through the issues and get their talent where other people who stopped eventually, you know, they, 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 most of them came back to me and said, okay, well, this thing isn't gonna end. What can we do? So uh, my advice has been and is, um, you know, business people need to kind of make the decision about what kind of risks they want to take in business, but it is possible to take steps even in a pandemic to fill your talent needs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that, David. It has been a real pleasure. I know the time, and I'm going to have to let you go here in just a few minutes. Uh, but before we close, I wanted to give you the chance to share with listeners how they can get connected with you, find out more about your work, your team, and what you can do for them. And then give us the final word on the topic for today.
1: Okay, you bet. Um, If um, people want to contact me, they can um, follow me on LinkedIn. Um, They can um, go to my law firm's website, which is uh, www.wolfsdorf.com. That's W-O-L-F-S-D-O-R-F dot com. They can call me at 310-570-4065. And um, I am based in Los Angeles. Um, Wolfsburg Rosenthal, uh, or WR Immigration, is a national immigration law firm. Um, We have two offices in Los Angeles, two in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, Boston, New York, and Shanghai. And um, we have the capacity to handle all kinds of uh, business immigration issues for um, almost any organization. Uh, Final word, I guess, I wanted to leave on a bright note. because the, um, uh, um, because, uh, the administration um, is dealing with kind of recovery from the pandemic, the world opening up, now they're looking at some areas where they can be more flexible. And re- very recently, the State Department has announced that they will um, waive interviews at U.S. consulates for, for certain cases that are um, most likely approvable. And this is, a, this is a big change, and it's going to help uh, companies um when they need to bring um employees in from overseas you know in some places the appointment uh, backlog is 6 months long and with the ability to waive interviews and have people either drop their passports off in their drop box or mail them in um that, that's a big um change for the positive we're very excited about that and for uh, in other ways that the federal government is really um working um with the corporate world to try to to facilitate things so i think there is a light at the end of the tunnel
0: Good, good. And it's always good to end on a positive note. Thank you, David. It's been a real pleasure. I encourage listeners to reach out, get connected, find out more about what David can do for you. Uh, Check out the firm. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week.